Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Uh, Scott Sylvan is a mentalist, and I think, Scott, the initial question for people who aren't familiar with the different categories of magic, such as kind of, I know you've got your, your illusions, mentalism, kind of close-up work, card tricks and so forth, what is a mentalist? That's a great question, and it is always the first question that people ask me as well. So illusion and magic and mentalism are all under the same category of the mystery arts. And to me, mentalism is the purest form of magic. So whilst a a traditional illusionist or a magician might use props or people in boxes or technology, my work isn't driven by any of this. It's by the power of story and mind and the imagination. And I use people's memories and emotions and experiences and weave them together to hopefully create impossible effects of mind reading. Now, you got into magic at an early age, I believe, because of your grandfather's card tricks. Is that right? That's right. Super young. I was five years old. And before the card trick, he showed me a little trick where he took a little piece of candy and vanished it and it appeared inside a little matchbox on the table. And I was absolutely hooked. And also growing up in Scotland, for me, it's a place where myth and mystery is is woven into the fabric of its identity. So growing up near a forest in Scotland, I always had that innate sense of imagination and intuition and wanted to explore mysteries further. Which you then proceeded to do without, instead of having a career in mind in the traditional sense of the word, you, what, went off to Italy to do a hypnotism course. You studied psychology and then... Uh, theatre training to blend all of them together into contemporary magic performance. That's absolutely right. So, yeah, I did a hypnosis course in Milan when I was 14, 15. Didn't tell my mum. What, did you just go to Milan without telling her? Yeah, so it was a really good deception, actually, Richard. I told her I was going to London, and she waved me off at the bus station from Glasgow to London. So I was technically going to London, but then I just got another bus from there to Italy, to Milan. (laughs) Went away for five days and came back with uh, this sort of knowledge of hypnosis. And then, you're right, I studied psychology. I studied contemporary performance in, in Edinburgh. And that really encompassed playwriting and acting and directing. And having this core set of skills allowed me to create the work that I do now. So you were very set from a very early age on going, I want to perform magic as a, as a living. This is my calling, my vocation. Yeah, I, I realise now like how lucky I was to have that, um, to know from a young age that you've really came in tune with something that brings you such joy. And I knew at that time as well that the magic that I often saw where it was like people performing in restaurants or at weddings, whilst I enjoyed it, it wasn't the the right that I wanted to go down. It was creating my own work, creating something that could speak to an audience and emotionally affect them. Let's talk about the kind of work that you do, because here at the festival, you're you're doing two different shows. So Wonders, uh, which is on at the famous Spiegel tent at the Arts Centre in Forecourt, which uh, is a, a kind of... A more traditional, the audience come in and participate and watch the show. Then you've got kind of the next step up at the Illusionist's mm. table, which is a, a more intimate, uh, more expensively ticketed uh, event with what matched whiskies and food yes. served and storytelling and magic woven in amongst a three-course dinner. That's right. So, yeah, Wonders is, as you say, it's a more traditional theatrical experience where the audience will come into the famous Spiegel tent. But what makes it slightly different is that it's an immersive journey. So the audience themselves become part of an experience that explores 
the power of the collective unconscious and the power of their own imaginations. So they're really the driving force of the experience. Rather than just a guy standing on stage performing tricks, they're the ones that are making these impossible things happen. And at the Illusionist Table is a much more intimate experience. It's 24 strangers join me around a table and I share a defining story from my past. And through the evening, whilst they enjoy whiskey and food and hearing this story, they realise that they're actually becoming part of this own defining story themselves. So it's a really beautiful experience to have every single night with 24 people, watching them connect around a table. Now, that sense of connecting strangers is magic Mm. in and of itself, in one sense of the word. Absolutely. How is your kind of magical skills uh, and training, how is that presented in these two shows? So the great thing about it is that it's never just about a series of disconnected effects. Uh, And once again, audiences watching me doing these great things and then moving on from it, that never really interests me. So my work is always driven by story, always driven by narrative. So the effects are part of the story and the effects obviously speak of a greater truth as well. I think magic as metaphor is a pretty powerful thing. And that's always been the driving force when I'm creating something. So if people come along expecting a fairly standard mind-reading act, Mm. that's not what you're going to give them? I hope not. I hope not. It's hopefully going to be a a much deeper experience where they themselves are going to be in in tune with their own imaginations. I really call it theatre for the mind. Now, in terms of the audiences who come along to your work... Are we talking a traditional theatre audience? Because I'm not necessarily Mm. sure there's such a thing as a traditional magic audience. (laughs) Even though here here in Melbourne we have the Melbourne Magic Festival every year, which has its own dedicated audience, Uh, many of whom are perhaps fellow uh, kind of people, whether they're practising conjuring or Mm. sleight of hand or or what have you. But so you are getting a more traditional theatre audience coming along and then you're showing them something that is not traditional theatre. Yeah, that's the hope. And the really lovely thing about both shows is that it really gives a wide variety of people uh, a chance of seeing some interesting theatre. So people that may not traditionally come to theatre but understand uh, the the world of magic will come along and hopefully see a really enjoyable and moving piece of theatre. And theatre people who are maybe more used to a traditional proscenium show where they're watching someone on stage and they're sitting in the dark are getting to experience something much more immersive. How collegiate is the world of magic in terms of people sharing advice, sharing tricks, teaching, training, uh, and just the general sense of camaraderie amongst kind of magicians internationally? It's a really uh, strong and powerful part of the community. Uh, Pretty much since the infancy of magic, people have been sharing techniques and effects. And there's a whole separate world where magicians sell effects to other magicians and techniques to other magicians. And there's also a meritocracy as well where you meet people along the way and if they trust you and they like the work that they're doing, they will share with you some techniques too. So it's really lovely that you're creating this toolbox of of lots of different methods and techniques from other people going back a couple of hundred years. Can you trace the lineage lineage back a couple of hundred years? Yeah, sometimes you can uh, with some things and then other times it, it goes back so far that you don't even... You don't even understand. So like a traditional magic effect, like the the cups and balls, goes way back to Egyptian times. It's one of the oldest effects. And there's sleight of hand in those effects that magicians are still using today to deceive audiences, which is quite beautiful. What about the kind of the mentalism that you're performing? What's the kind of lineage of that? And when did it uh, emerge in modern times as a kind of classifiable art form? Mm. I think mentalism 
bizarrely has its roots in uh, spiritualism in Victorian times. There was people like the Davenports brothers and the Fox sisters who proclaimed to be able to read minds and commune with the dead. And magicians went along to these shows, saw the techniques that they were using, and were like, this isn't real, it's just magic techniques. And from that craft, the sort of world of mentalism existed. So initially, I think it came about with magicians trying to debunk what spiritualists were doing. I don't think it was for any moral reason. It was just to get other people to go along to their shows rather than the spiritualist shows. But for whatever reason, this this other world of mentalism existed. And from there, it's grown into being about debunking spiritualists and psychics. Certainly for me, into discovering the power of the imagination, the power of the human mind and what we're capable of. So since that time... It sort of had its heyday in the Victorian era. And now, I think because we live in such sceptical times, it's a really lovely form of magic because there's nothing really to hide behind. It's just one person connecting with another person. Which must make it in some ways difficult in the sense that if you're uh, – if you do – close-up magic with sleight of hand. Somebody uh, somebody on a tram or a bus or a train can go, oh, show us a trick, and you can do a trick. Exactly. Can you, if somebody says to you, give me an example, show us what you do, yeah, yeah. It, I imagine it would be a little bit trickier to do something in... That's like- it. It's always about context, and it's about building rapport with the person as well. So in terms of impossibility in the, in the show, you're, build, you're racking up the impossibility of the effects as you go on because you have to initially build that rapport with the audience. So much like the idea that you can't just click your fingers and someone will be hypnotised, you can't just walk into a room blindly and proclaim to read someone's mind. You've got to be able to read body language and yeah, kind of yeah. engage in conversation with That's them it. and so forth. To what extent uh, do your... Obviously, studying psychology makes mm. absolute sense mm-hmm. for, for mentalism because you need to understand people, how they think, how they work, read kind of body language cues, read kind of other cues, as verbal cues as well. How does studying hypnosis help with mentalism and magic? Well, hypnosis is a really interesting thing because when I went to study this course in Milan, the first thing that I learned is that people still don't really truly understand whether hypnosis is real or not. So you can speak to neuroscientists and you can speak to hypnotherapists and acclaimed stage hypnotists, and they can sometimes not quite exactly define what's happening. So to me, it's really just about allowing the audience to tap into their subconscious, to relax their mindset and to be open to experiencing the signals that I'm trying to send them. There's nothing overtly in my show that is hypnosis. There, there's no one falling asleep or pretending to be brooms. a chicken. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the worst type of hypnosis. But to me, it's about, yeah, just allowing the audience um, to tap into that innate sense of intuition, uh, allowing them to open up a little bit more. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Scott Sylvan, who's performing two works at the Melbourne International Arts Festival, uh, Wonders at the famous Spiegel Tent on the forecourt of Art Centre Melbourne from the 5th until the 20th of October, and uh, at the Illusionist's Table, which is happening at Chapter House from the 3rd until the 20th of October. Wonders, tickets from $59 at the Illusionist's Table because it's a three-course dinner and drinks as well as a very intimate performance. Uh, tickets are uh, 399 and that includes your dinner and drinks. Now, I know at the Illusionist's Table when you performed it in Edinburgh, mm. uh, as I mentioned, paired with kind of whiskies. Yes. Uh, 
there are obviously lots of whiskey distilleries in Scotland that sure. you can partner with. Uh, what's the approach here? Have you spoken to a local winery, for example, or is whiskey still part of the attraction? It's, it's whiskey, I'm afraid, yeah. So the whiskey ties to uh, this defining story from my childhood. And when we started the show in Edinburgh, I went to a place called the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. And this was really the infancy of the show where I, I attended this place, went, went for a whiskey tasting one evening. And it was incredible because they sourced bottles of whiskey that were the only bottles of its kind in existence. So initially when I started doing the show, we would be sharing a bottle of whiskey at the table that would only exist in that moment. And then the next night it would be a different bottle of whiskey. So there was a really beautiful transience to the experience, much like the magic as well. So whilst touring, it is a little more challenging to find very rare uh, single malt Scotch whiskies, especially in Melbourne, because wine is such a big thing here and beer as well. But we've managed to source some some great single malt selections, and we keep them secret until until you come to the show. So if you do head along to At The Illusionist's Table, it sounds like you're in for an absolute treat. Also, if you get along to Wonders at the famous Spiegel Tent. Uh, so those dates again, At The Illusionist's Table, on from the 3rd until the 20th of October. Uh, two hours, ten minutes, no interval. Tickets, three ninety nine, including three-course dinner and drinks. Wonders at the famous Spiegel Tent on the forecourt of Art Centre Melbourne. Uh, on from the 5th until the 20th of October. Look at the website for exact dates. That's about an hour and ten minutes, and tickets from fifty. Melbourne International Arts Festival runs until the 20th of October. You can get tickets for all the shows and information about them at www.festival.melbourne. Scott Sylvan, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Great to meet you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Time for us to return to the Melbourne International Arts Festival and some of the many works that are on during the festival. One is a new work presented by one of Australia's most successful uh, theatre companies on the national and international stage, based in Geelong, Back to Back Theatre, uh, presenting a new work at the festival this year, The Shadow Whose Prey the Hunter Becomes. And I keep wanting to call that The Shadow Whose Prey Becomes the Hunter, but no, The Shadow Whose Prey the Hunter Becomes. Joining us to tell us more from Back to Back, we have artist Scott Price and artistic director of the company, Bruce Gladwin. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Richard, for welcoming yeah. us. Yeah. So, um, Bruce, I'll kick off with you. You've been involved with Back to Back for quite a few years now and seeing the company's kind of... Uh, kind of footprint become larger and larger, recently moving into TV, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the, the focus of this new production? Well, yeah, that's a good question. So often um, the works that we make are in kind of, we're trying to answer questions that have been raised in a previous work. And the last work we made was called Lady Eats Apple, which is made originally for Hamer Hall and was a grand spectacle <laughs> inside a giant inflatable inside Hamer Hall. And this show is really very stripped back and um, it's very simple. It's the, the it's, actors. Um, it's very minimal, like, very minimal, like, show. Like, it's quite intimate in that way because, like, you know, like, you're directing it, like, to the audience and stuff like that. So, so it's, yeah. and it's five of you, uh, kind of, Scott, sitting on stage talking, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So it's, um, it's my colleagues, um, Simon, Sarah, Michael and Mark who are all, um, sort of, like, in that production and um we're talking about um disability rights and um and history of abuse and i think it's a tale which must be told 
In terms of creating and devising the work, Bruce, where did the seed for this begin? Mm. In Lady Eats Apple and something that grew out of it uh, directly or is it slightly more kind of... Mm. I'm waving my hands around in a windy no, no, fashion. It's, it's good. Uh, it's but, a, yeah. Uh, we had... Uh, we had a, a barrister on our board who was an employment uh, rights had an employment rights focus. He brought our attention to a New York Times article about called "The Boys in the Bunkhouse," which is about thirty-two men with intellectual disabilities that were liberated from a turkey processing plant in Iowa, and they'd been living and attached to this plant for thirty odd years and being paid something like twenty dollars a month for that time. So it was really a story about slave labour, and we initially thought, "Oh, let's try and make." show about that and uh, we had some difficulty doing American accents yeah we did I had a lot of difficulty it was so bad it was like trying to basically you know get someone to try and do like we fake American accent it was just that bad you should try never ask me to try and do one because I'm probably just as bad Scott but yeah. essentially we felt like we had no skin in the story and but it was you know it's one of these things where you go all right we're going to aim for that and we put it we did a showing and but some of the feedback we had uh, was from Philip Keir who came and um, he said look uh, Scott stood up at one point in the showing and just told the story in a really passionate way mm-hmm. said he's Scott's like an activist and uh, and we thought oh there's something really great about an activist they can just get to the short and curly of what needs to be said. And so uh, we started developing this idea about five activists um, holding a public meeting. And uh, so it's it's grown from there. But it's really the show is generated through improvisation and mm. conversation between a, a lot just, just, just the um, actors themselves. Mm. And, um, and then my role is to really document mm. that and videotape it and then start to build a script mm. from those conversations. And once you have a script for the work, Scott, are you still improvising on stage? Uh, it's mostly set in stone, like, um, behold, it's good. I think, um, like, last night's show, I, um, no, true story, I, um, sort of said, oh, I try and basically adjust my belts, and I said, oh, like, I stood up on, like, the podium and said, oh, just try and adjust my belt, and everyone laughed, so. Scott's pants were falling down, so he had to adjust his belt. It, it was shocking. It was really <laughs> bad. It was like, God. But yeah. it's one of the things that I like about Back to Back's work when I see it is kind of the fact that lines are blurred between kind of real the the real world that we are living in and the fictional world of theatre. Mm. That sometimes uh, I never quite know where one ends and the other begins, and that might be because you're performing in an outdoor space with people passing by, or because it's a production that is largely scripted but has room for improvisation and for actors to go off the cuff. Yeah, I also think there's a, a, some sort of dynamic, and I don't quite fully understand it, where because the performers are perceived to have intellectual disabilities and mm. that there's this constant kind of questioning in the audience's mind of going, is this based on their real-life story or is, it, is, it, is, is this fiction? Or you know, And I think that we, mm. we play with that tension and we never really release the audience from that dynamic. Mm. Yeah, I think we do. I think there's like... You know, like a lot of tension for you. I think if you don't have tension, it's going to lead. I mean, it's just like anything. Yeah, you need tension to pull the audience along yeah, and a leash. Yeah, you do. I think you need like a hard storyline. I think that's like what audiences want to see. And the audience in this new show, The Shadow Whose Prey the Hunter Becomes, they are an audience in both real life and in the world of the show because they've gathered to listen to five activists talking on stage about effectively modern slavery. Yeah, they are, which I think um, what you've got to remember like, um, that 
it can't go on for that long. I mean, we've got, like, the Umber War Commission happening, like, in Australia. You know, I think we've got, like, other people speaking up, you know, like, for whatever reason it is, yeah. I mean, I think, like, people just have had enough, and I think, you know, like, I think people just really just want it to stop. And one of the other... Th- I mean, because uh, to backtrack for a moment, although this is being performed uh, at Melbourne International Arts Festival uh, from, what, the 9th to the 20th of October, you've already done a season in Sydney, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So uh, how did the Sydney audience respond and how has the, the show changed between Sydney and the, and the Melbourne version? Uh, well, it's we, we are actually doing a season of it now in Geelong as part of Geelong Art Centre, yeah. um, and so yeah, we've just it's just been one continuum since Sydney. Uh, look, it's uh, the three spaces are very different. We're in Bay Seventeen at Carriage Works, which is like about twenty times the size of our space in Geelong, and uh, and then we'll be in the Fairfax in Melbourne. So each of the spaces. But one of the aims of the project is that we wanted to make a show that could tour to a large international festival or we could take it to a small community hall in regional Australia. So it's incredibly flexible. Um, as Scott said before, it's very Unlike minimal. Lady Eats Apple. Yeah. <laughs> please, it. seriously, please book tickets because this is a must-see performance that you have to say. One of the things that intrigues me about it, yes, it's talking about the way the the pretty shameful history that companies have had of using people with perceived disabilities as effectively slave labour. And I think one of the examples given is the Hasbro Games Company, who Mm. was uh, working with inmates of the Catholic Church's Magdalene Laundry uh, as effectively unpaid labour to assemble board games Mm. up until 2012. So there's that aspect of it. But it's also looking at the fact that in the future we might all become slaves in some way uh, as artificial intelligence and computers take over more and more of our lives. Yeah, can I just say, um, since that story came to life, I think it was like Hasbro said, I've actually moved like the games which I've actually owned, and um, I've actually moved, I think, like some of like the, um, the PS4 games we've actually owned on my PS4. So, what did you do with them? Put them in the bin? No, uh, I think they're on the cloud, but I'm not sure. I think on it's probably, um, yeah. it's like the yeah. bin. Um, yeah, so yeah, it does have this even though the story is kind of rooted in these true stories of the Magdalene Laundry and the turkey farm, it also um, projects forward to a point where artificial intelligence overcomes human intelligence and what, what will be the repercussions for um, the general populace. Um, and uh, in, in a way places the, the characters on stage as some form of experts and that are offering advice to the audience. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the latest work from Back to Back Theatre, The Shadow Whose Prey the Hunter Becomes, which is on in the Fairfax studio at Arts Centre Melbourne from the 9th to the 20th of October. And I'll give the times and booking details and ticket prices shortly. Now, Scott, you've been involved with Back to Back for quite a while now, since yeah. 2007, is yes, that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. For you as an actor, what's the, the thing that you most get out of working with Back to Back? Uh, probably just, um, probably just, um, just working, like, just, just to work in some capacity in this industry. I think um, just a sense of, like, just doing work and of what you love. And similarly, the same question to you, Bruce. You've been involved as AD for how many years now? Uh, it's 20 years, Richard. Yeah. It's been so, well. 
you obviously also get an enormous amount out of working with the yeah. company. 20 years, though, is a long time to, it is. to work in one role in the arts. There seems to be a tradition that people get shuffled around after five or six years often. Kind of clearly you're committed to back-to-back, but also I imagine committed to making work and celebrating the unique elements of Geelong as a city as well. Yeah, for sure. Look, um, <clears throat> when I first... Uh, saw back-to-back's work, it was as an audience member, and I sat there in a total state of disbelief, going, this is the most incredible um, theatre and I want to work for this company, you know. And so it was like a kind of long-term ambition for me to um, be able to work with the company. And uh, it's just been a real pleasure to be able to collaborate with the ensemble and the ensemble, you know, we've got some new members within the ensemble, but there's some long-term members that I've had the opportunity to be collaborating with in quite unique circumstances that doesn't... It's very hard to maintain longevity with artistic ensembles. and But uh, we have, I guess, fortunate enough to have an, enough inf- infrastructure and just general support to be able to maintain the ensemble. And, um, and we've built a dialogue over many years and, um, and it continues to benefit me as an artist individually and I think for the ensemble as well. It's, it's been a very fruitful collaboration. Well, certainly the work that the company creates has been fantastic and I always enjoy seeing a new back-to-back show. Uh, and am I right in thinking uh, Ganesh versus the Third Reich is being made into a film? Yes, that's right, yeah. Cool. Uh, how, how, tell us a little bit about that as well. Uh, so um, so we got some funding, I think it was from the Victoria government and, um, and Crave, Crave Victoria and... Um, I think Andrew Dan so Andrew so Daniel Andrews came down and um said uh we've got some money there we um like to donate this month's money um to contributors um to movie. Fantastic. When can we expect to see it? Uh, well, at this this stage, we've just got some resources to start working on the script. So it's just really for script development. Um, we'll have to once we've got the script in place, we'll be seeking some resources to be able to shoot the production. And uh, so I think it's a few years off at this stage, but uh-huh. we're really excited about. Well, I'm impatient, so yeah. I'll just Good. have to wait. Fair enough. Because I've never managed to see Ganesh versus the Third Reich. Uh-huh. It's the the back to back show that I keep missing, even uh, in different cities and different seasons. But I've seen so much else of the company's work. I'm really looking forward to seeing The Shadow Whose Prey the Hunter Becomes. Uh, It's on in the Fairfax studio at Art Centre Melbourne from the 9th to the 20th of October, Wednesdays to Saturdays, 7.30pm. Saturdays also a matinee at 2.30pm and Sundays at 2.30pm. Tickets from $49. You can book at www.festival.melbourne or call the Art Centre right now, 1300 182 183 to book to see back theatres The Shadow Whose Prey The Hunter Becomes. Scott Price and Bruce Gladwin, thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Anytime. Thanks, Richard. Triple R. You may be familiar with the work of artist David Hockney. There was a a big survey of his more recent work produced on iPads, uh, for example, at the NGV recently. Or you may be more familiar with his paintings of Los Angeles swimming pools from the 1960s. 
He's a, a fascinating artist, one of the great British artists of his generation, and indeed in 2011 was voted the most influential British artist of the 20th century. But there's a lot more to David Hockney than uh, than just photo collages and swimming pools and iPad portraits uh, and paintings of landscapes, as we're about to discover. I'm joined on the line by Sally Foster, curator of international prints, drawings and illustrated books at the National Gallery of Australia. Sally, good morning and welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me. So the exhibition that you're, I believe, currently hanging at the Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery, opening in a couple of days on the 5th of October, David Hockney prints drawn from the extensive collection at the National Gallery of Australia. For you, why is David Hockney such a significant artist? Uh, You know, it's an interesting question. Probably he was, um, in a lot of ways, I I feel like he was a really kind of singular artist. So he's almost a bit of an outlier. He's one of those people who built a career for himself and has maintained it just because he's had this kind of really unique practice. He's really, um, you know, he didn't really, even though he sort of came up during the whole kind of swinging London period in the early 60s, he was really amongst that. He really kind of remained his own man. He didn't really join a group or a movement. So there is really something about Hockney's work that's very kind of, um, even though he's kind of looking to the world, it's very much about Hockney and his kind of, um, you know, just his life. It's a really kind of, it's really charming. It's really fun. There's, uh, there's a real humour to it. So there's just something about it that's you can't help but kind of be drawn in. It's, it's hard to be cynical about it. It's really kind of, it's got a kind of a really a lovely edge. And I think that's why he's just remained so popular and people really respond so positively to him. There's certainly a, a kind of a vibrancy and a vitality to his work across any medium. Oh, yeah. You know, and we're just, um, as you said, we're just installing at the moment. So we're right in the thick of it. But just pulling out the works even from the sort of 70s and early 80s and just the kind of the intense colour. I keep thinking of, um, you know, just all that kind of, you know, that beautiful bright colour that, you know, pop colour really that came out in the um, in the 80s in terms of fashion and all sorts of things. Someone like Ken Doan, for example, and you look at it now and you kind of laugh, but it's really, you know, Hockney was really kind of, uh, you know, he had great fun with colour and there's just something about it that's, uh, you know, it's really, you know, you're really, you're really drawn to it. Let's talk about his influence on other artists for a moment, which is something that intrigues me. Because, as I said, he was voted kind of uh, kind of Britain's most influential artist at one point. Even going right back to the late fifties and the early sixties at the Slade Art School and others in London, he was influencing artists like uh, D- Derek Jarman, who went on to become a kind of a significant British filmmaker. Uh, and he was impressing people not only by his art but the way he lived his life his kind of open homosexuality at a time when it was still kind of I think it had just been legalized in Britain but was still kind of very much shunned and frowned upon so as an individual and as an artist he's influenced uh, artists from the 60s onwards yeah you're totally right and you can see it from the very beginning so he goes to the Royal College of Art in 59 he gets in so he's there in that kind of really early 60s period and from day one like from the get-go he's making imagery about being 
homosexual. So it's like he was completely comfortable in his skin, which is really remarkable for the period. So he's just making these really kind of fun, really gorgeous, and his early etchings and uh, particularly series like The Rake's Progress from 61 to 63, which we've got on display here. We've got a set in the collection. And they're just so brilliant. They're just so... They're cool. They look fantastic. You know, aesthetically, it's that really kind of rough, raw, edgy edgy kind of... um, appearance of this kind of guy who's just sketching but even the imagery of the kind of visiting the gay bars and the beats and so he was really out and proud about that which was really unusual so you know there's no doubt that people like Jarman would have just kind of come along and looked at his work and just thought yes this is fantastic so and you know it's really amazing to see the kind of confidence he had in himself like he, he never kind of shied away from anything I think that's another why, a reason why people were just really drawn to him because you can see instantly that people were really attracted to him people all sorts of people really influential people in the art world like he must have just been a fantastic guy to have at parties and openings and things you can just see people are just you know he's one of those kind of magnetic characters and I'm sure that's all a part of it because he was just so open and comfortable and 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 out there and also uh he's uh a voraciously kind of uh in terms of the media that he kind of embraced and worked in, he is voracious in that regard, moving from uh, painting to lithography and etching. But as I've mentioned, uh, people may be familiar with his kind of iPhone and iPad work more recently, for example, as well. And I believe David Hockney Prince at Mornington Peninsula Gallery kind of recognises and displays that real breadth of practice. Even, yes, we're talking about printmaking, but we're talking about printmaking using so many different media. Yeah, that's right. So he was really experimental in in the terms of technique. So you don't think of him as a conceptual artist, but he was always thinking about how you could make art, like what could be used to make art, and that he did that from from the very beginning. So um, we've got this, we haven't got any of these on display because they're too fragile, but we have this amazing collection of works he made with fax machines back in the um, early 80s or mid-80s when they came out because he saw this technology and he thought, okay, you know, this is new, what can I do with this? That, uh, you know, how could I experiment with this and, and use it and see how it could be used for art? So he did this kind of fantastic series where he would fax um, images and works and pictures to people in galleries and then they would come out and they'd go straight on the wall and that was the exhibition. So he was really interested from the beginning. He went through a kind of phase of doing works on computers to see if that would work. And, you know, often these kind of ended up in dead ends, but he was just always really up for just seeing what what could, you know, what this technology, what possibilities it could use for art. And that's going through now to his, you know, his current work on iPads. And we have two of the um, large-scale iPad works on display here in the exhibition. And they're really beautiful. They're really gorgeous. So They are, yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah, you know, just that kind of lovely, rich colour, but even just the imagery. So he's really, um, you know, he always kind of was interested in pushing the limits. And the work he did with Ken Tyler in his printmaking studio when he kind of got in there and started using paper pulp so as a kind of a printing technique and they again there's kind of there's a lushness and a gorgeousness to them and he's kind of they sort of transcend printmaking all move into sort of painting but he was just he was interested in seeing you know where he could go with different techniques and great to have an exhibition like this that shows that versatility and that range over several decades as well as you say from the 60s up to the present day that's right. So, you know, which is, we're really fortunate to have it because you can really see with this one particular artist, and a really important artist, where he's gone on every stage, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 
90s and to the 2000s. So we have that entire scope of his career, which is really rare and remarkable. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's really brilliant. David Hockney Prince is showing at the Mornington Peninsula Gallery in Civic Reserve, uh, Duns Road, Mornington. Uh, the dates are from the 5th of October until the 1st of December and you can visit uh, mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au for more details. The gallery is open Tuesdays to Sundays, 10am to 5pm. It is a ticketed exhibition but very attractively priced. $4 for adults, $2 concession if you want to get along. And of course, like most exhibitions, there will be curator floor talks, a printmaking workshop, a children's program and on Friday the 22nd of November, at 5pm, a very special talk by David Hockney's brother, John, who's written a book to be released uh, next year called The Hockneys Never Worry What the Neighbours Think, which sound just the title alone makes me intrigued. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, so uh, that those dates again from the 5th of October until the 1st of December. Uh, David Hockney prints at Mornington Peninsula, uh, drawn from the collection at the National Gallery of Australia. Uh, and I've been talking with Sally Foster, curator, international prints, drawings and illustrated books at the National Gallery of Australia. Sally, I'll let you get back to uh, kind of hanging the exhibition. Many thanks for joining us at Triple R. Great. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>